Welcome to the Roadrunner Exchange, a show that features leaders from Metropolitan State University of Denver discussing the projects, initiatives, and decisions impacting our campus community. I'm your host, Dr. Samuel Jay, Director of Faculty Affairs and Associate Professor of Communication Studies. Today I talk with Dr. Katia Campbell, Chair of the Department of Communication Studies, former President of Faculty Senate, and longtime MSU Denver professor. We discuss leadership and education, but also take a deep dive into free speech, something about which both of us had a lot to say. Hope you'll enjoy. Is this your first podcast? No. You've been on a podcast before? I have. For what? It was called, it's the camp experience. So okay. I can't get into too many details because I don't have it in front of me, not because it's a secret. Oh, oh but okay. I, don't I was like, I knew you were a suspect AF, <laughs> I right? To, I don't want to represent, okay. but it is a partnership that Christine Marquez Hudson has. So, and um, with Becky Wearsma. Yeah. And so she runs a podcast. So I think it was in 2020 okay. I was on a podcast. I forgot about that. Yeah. That's cool. And I did the summer thing, the, not thing, the summer experience that yes. they had. And you're used to talking anyway. A little bit. So. Yeah. So Katia Campbell, Dr. Katia Campbell, <laughs> a dear, dear friend of mine that I've now known for 11 years. Um Associate, or no, full professor. Full professor. Full professor of communication studies. Uh, faculty Senate president as ex officio. Did yes. I say that correctly? Yes. Is my Latin okay? Yep. And now uh, chair of the Department of Communication Studies. Yep. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for, for joining me. me. No, I, I'm so excited. We finally got to do this. Um, I, 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 you know, I told you we kind of go off script. There's some things that we'll cover and everything, but I really want to, you know, provide an introduction to the campus uh, of you, right? I think, um, you know, you were head of faculty senate for two years. Three. And, uh, three? Was it three? Three years. Like, three years. Ah, they flew by. Yes. And nothing started, happened in those three years. Nothing happened. I started fall of 2019. Okay. Spring 2020 rolled around and it was just a piece of cake. It was fine. It was, it was fine. fine. Yeah. But I want to start with a question. Okay, so, so we've never talked about this in detail. What was your dissertation on? Freedom of speech, the uh, the challenge of hate speech to the First Amendment. Okay. So the conflict between our free speech principles and uh, hate speech. Our, okay. All right. Explain that. What was, what right. was your hypothesis? So, so or basically, your, your, yeah. of course, I, I problematized it and said that we need to, to really think about what we mean by freedom of speech and okay. what the... Um, when we go back in history and think about how we've developed this free speech principle, mm -hmm. um, it started from this whole idea of the marketplace of ideas, right? Uh -huh. And so this, this concept of being able to have public conversation and elevate uh, the argument and okay. actually have... Um, yes, opinions, but opinions that are backed by argument. And mm -hmm. so, yes, all voices and every voice needs to be heard. But yeah. the but the concept is that we want an argument behind it. But hate speech such shuts down speech. And I'm not saying that I'm for censorship, and I did not argue that uh -huh. in the dissertation. I was just problematizing that all. And uh -huh. I also brought in the communication element of thinking about speech as constitutive okay. instead of as a tool. Okay. So a lot of times when people think about hate speech, they think that it is just something that hurts someone's feelings uh -huh. because it's like a speech is just a tool. Uh -huh. But when we start to think about it 
as constituting our culture, our society, our identity, yeah. our relationships, our voting patterns, all of those kinds of things, we we have to think about it a mm -hmm. little bit differently. Did you get into constitutional law? I know your idea of yeah. constituting it. Like, that's what I, mean, I actually mean the constitution. Did you delve into that? No, not too much. No, I focus more so on the, the principles of communication studies when it comes to constitutive, constitutive, they call mm -hmm. it a different thing, and or uh, or considering communication as a tool. So I didn't get too, too much into the laws, besides the most basic. Mm -hmm. And I talked a bit um, using some of the critical race theorists mm -hmm. and, and their scholarship on um, it, uh, it, injury, speech okay. to injure. And so it's Matsuda et al., yeah. the, the, the book Words That Wound talks a lot about um, just the impact of hate speech okay. throughout our throughout communities. And um, there's another great book, and it's called Only Words from Catherine McKinnon. Okay. And she talks about um, pornography. Okay. And she talks about how certain types, uh, basically, that it, you can't really separate the, the imagery and the treatment of women in some of the, the types of pornography mm -hmm. with the way that women are actually treated in society, that we can't okay. necessarily see them as completely separate things. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and I really love one of the things that Catherine McKinnon says is that when you have, not necessarily just with pornography, but just with images of hate speech in general or abusive mm -hmm. speech or abusive nonverbal communication, yeah. whatever it might be, that the next time we sit down next to a person or interact with a person that's from that group that we constantly hear those kinds of, you know, that, that hate speech about, yeah. it's really hard not to think about it. It's really okay. hard not to kind of recreate it in our minds and think negatively or harshly or judgmentally about a person yeah. Because it's so embedded in us. Mm -hmm. So I guess I'm I'm really intrigued by this. This is something that Liz and I talked about with her with her interview. You know, the public and the private space and all of that. Yeah. Um, have we moved away as a society from understanding that kind of free speech right as something that is intended to have I don't know public the public yes. in consideration to now this kind of understanding of of that freedom as this thing that can also impact my personal life? I mean, is that, does that make sense? Like, um, what I'm trying to say, I think that with free speech comes a responsibility that when you speak, you're speaking in a public space or that yes. it may come out publicly, right? And yep. so and when you're talking about kind of arguments and all and having kind of reasonability mm -hmm. uh, impacting what you say, yes, that we've gotten away from that awareness Right. Yes. And kind yes. of just said, no, it is my right to say whatever I yes. want to anybody, no matter the situation. Yes, I, I completely agree with that. That was clear enough. Yes. Oh, yes, definitely. And I agree with that. And, and to add to that, we've gotten away from public reason okay. and yeah. rationality. Yes, yes. And so it's all about uh, platforming opinions mm -hmm. that are not necessarily based in reason. Okay. Um, and, okay. and a cogent argument yes. and who, whose voices, who can, um, be the most strident mm -hmm. and loud and obnoxious and whatever, you know, and, and be on these platforms. Uh, unfortunately that, that carries a lot of weight uh -huh. instead of, um, thoughtful public deliberation, um, thoughtful conversation, even if people do not agree, but having that conversation, yeah. how, how do we actually engage in thoughtful conversation when one person is saying, you are not worthy as a human right. being. Is what's what's the history of this? I mean, did you of kind which of, part? of of have we ever had that commitment to public um, reason 
in yeah, our that's, American that's, democracy? That's a great question. That's a great question. I would say we never had the full commitment. No, because no. then we have to consider education as well. Yeah. And we have to consider access and all of that. So that there's all there have always been those issues. Um, what I would say, though, is that we started to take a turn when the 24-hour news cycles began. And then people could, like, we used to have a common source of news, even though that was problematic, too, and we could challenge that, and, you know, but um, the fact that people can go off into their separate spaces, and this is even before we talk about social media, right? And so with the 24-hour news cycle, we could kind of pick and Mm -hmm. choose the news that fit our biases and our viewpoints and made us feel good. Yeah. and and so yeah, and and now we don't really have to engage with people who think differently. No, and that news cycle—that's so crazy that you bring that up because I did. I, I was talking to Liz Goodnick about this when yeah. we did it earlier. Yeah. You were, wow. we were talking about the twenty-four hour news cycle, but I guess I mean you and I have such similar backgrounds when yeah. it comes to our education. So, but um, not only right does it allow for. Uh, uh, Discover not discovery, right? But seeking out of opinions that are already in agreement with your own. But I think that the the beast that needs to be fed with content yes. is so much larger now. Yes. And so it's not as if uh, uh, there is an appetite for just a bunch of shit. Yes. Right. And so it has to continually move the social media monster, or you know, the mechanisms that operate and kind of keep things moving, communicating all that. It needs continual kind of information. Exactly. Spewing of, of this stuff. Yes. And that's a great word, spewing. Because, yes. and shit. And yeah, Two great words. Yeah. Because it really does not yeah. matter. Yeah. It does not matter what is uh, put out there for us anymore. Yeah. Uh, I mean, of course it matters, but I'm saying that the, pe- you know, the people yeah. behind the scenes that are putting out this content that are developing these packages mm-hmm. and everything, uh, the anchors, the opinion, you know, all of them, yeah. they don't care. They don't have a sen- They don't seem to have a sense of r- responsibility or ethic when it comes to their role in ser- like I would see them as serving the public. Mm-hmm. I think that they ought to have that mm-hmm. mindset, but I see them as serving, of course, their own, you know, their mm-hmm. own interest in terms of their, whatever their media platform mm-hmm. is. Like you said, getting more eyes, more ears, more clicks, more whatever it might be. Well, I mean, public good. So, yeah. Public good is not necessarily the driving uh, uh, motivation no. for the news. It's 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 uh, attention. It's attention. And yeah. the more that these platforms continue to grow, and the more that there are, yeah. the more that is. I can't. I can't not see how that doesn't increase exponentially. Exactly. Because yeah. it's not like we're going to get away from it. Exactly. We're not. We're not. And when you when you say it's all about attention and then going back to the 24-hour news cycle, think about what they needed to do that it fundamentally changed the way we received news yeah. as well because it's all about keeping our eyes. I mean, of course, I'm talking about television news. Mm-hmm. It was all about keeping our eyes mm-hmm. on, on the television, right? Yeah. 24 hours. And so um, that's when we get the breaking news, breaking news, mm-hmm. breaking news. Oh, it's a snowstorm. I mean, like, you know, so it's, yeah. No, no, no. How it, do it, we it, parse through all of this content and information coming at us? How do you how do you wrestle with emotion and affect with your own understanding of kind of free speech? Uh, uh, how do you understand, I'll be very specific okay. in this question. How do you understand emotion as the glue that 
makes ideas, whether they're good or bad, sticky. Okay. Right? They don't. Reasonability yeah. isn't the thing that mm-hmm. keeps an idea in motion yep. anymore. It is yeah, very much feeling, emotion, affect, whatever you call it. Yeah. Right. And here's the other thing, too. So, yes. Yeah, so, um, the other thing about emotion, I agree with what you just said, the stickiness about it, but what stickiness is oftentimes the negative emotions. Yeah. Oftentimes yeah. the, the ones that are uh, rooted in, in bias and hatred and uh, othering. Is that evolutionary? I mean, is that, is, that, is, that, is, that, is, that, is that part of our animalistic nature? That's, I don't know. Like the need for survival? I, yeah, per, yeah, perhaps. Uh, yeah, perhaps. But there's also a human element in terms of a need for identity. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Feeling that. Yeah, That's good. That, yeah. Connection. Mm-hmm. And so if I can wave a flag or put on a hat or whatever it might be, um, I can show that I identify with a particular group. And I think there's that, that need there too. All right. Well, let's, I, I mean, I, it's funny. I wrote this down as something to talk about with, with what you're doing with David Fine and yeah. kind of the larger things uh, on campus with dialogue and free speech and all of that. My question to begin this is how do we counter that? Yes. Right? And then yeah. what are you doing and here at the institution, some of those projects that you're working on okay. to, to help energize that? What's, yeah. what's, how do we counter that? Yeah, I'm glad that you asked that question because I do want to um, take an opportunity to clarify. Oftentimes, whenever I'm in um, situations where I'm talking about free speech and hate speech, people often jump to the assumption that I'm uh, advocating for censorship. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not, actually. Yeah. I'm advocating for argument and reason. Yeah. They're, they're, they are different. Um, there are some elements where censorship might come into play when, for instance, if we have a captive audience, um, the mm-hmm. professional aspects, um, even, for instance, a company like NBC, mm-hmm. they have the right as a company uh, to say, hey, I don't want this person representing my company okay. because of what they're saying. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not going to hire them back okay. because they also have free speech as a company. Right. Yeah. And so so yeah. in those contexts, yeah, there is a bit of censorship, but it really gets on my nerves when people scream and vent and complain about um, any time someone counters something that they say that is, you know, uh, hateful or terrible yeah. that, oh, they're shutting down my free speech or taking away my free speech. It's like, no, you can still say it. You just said it. And yeah. you're going to say it again and again right. and again. And you're not being put in jail. So you still have your free speech. Yeah. Yeah. People don't understand that. And it, and it frustrates me. So that I just wanted to clarify that. No, I mean, that's but, a, I think about Alex Jones uh, yeah. and the deplatforming. Exactly. But his 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 criticism of the deplatforming is you're taking away my free speech, right? Yeah. But you point out NBC, but I think of a Twitter or a Meta, yep. right? No, yep. they are private they are private entities that can absolutely take away that platform. Yes. You can still say it. But now that yeah. You don't have the right to have an audience. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly right. But people assume that they do. Okay. And this whole, like this, yeah, they, they assume that they just automatically have that right. And, um, and, that com- and they don't think about the rights of the company. That when they sign up for Twitter, mm-hmm. they, you have to go through the list of rules in terms of the guidelines for behavior on, on that platform. Does it frustrate? I mean, you, I'm terrible at doing interviews. They're, they're more conversation. Um, <laughs> I would assume that you get insanely frustrated sometimes when people talk about free speech 
at the personal level, but also, I mean, the mainstream narrative oh, yes. is the criticism that you're pointing out now. Absolutely. Right? Like free speech has been collapsed into this yes. thing that really isn't free speech. Yes, right? it's not free. Yeah, it's not. Okay. Yeah. It's it, people don't know what the hell they're talking about. Okay. And it's people that should know what the hell they're talking yeah. about. That's what is beyond frustrating. To and by me. by people that should, are you talking about journalists? Talking about the journalists, politicians. Okay. Um, the two major ones yeah. that I'm that I'm thinking. Okay, sorry. Yeah, so that, no, okay. that's fine. But right, that's, so, yeah. so how do we counter it? Right. How do we counter it? Um, of course, you know, this is not going to sound very positive because my, my answer is always education and, and really going back to teaching things like critical thinking, um, the history of our, our free speech principle, if we really want yeah. to get specific, um, talking about how to communicate across difference, dialogue, those kinds of things. So I think all of those um, aspects are great ways to counter it. But the negative aspect is not to, the negative aspect is education is under attack in this country. Mm -hmm. And so K through college, mm -hmm. uh, anytime, anything, it, you know, people, teachers are trying to teach any elements of diversity or equity or, you know, critical thinking or any of that. Or reasonability. They are part of, or reasonability. <laughs> they are part of the woke left right. and, you know, need to be shut down and canceled, by the way, because canceling goes across the political spectrum. Yes. Yes. I'll push back. I 100% agree. I 100% yeah. agree. Yeah. Right. I, you and I agree on so everything. <laughs> we in academia don't really do ourselves a service when we think of, we will automatically shut down the other side too. Yes. You're right. Right. You're right. I mean, yeah. And, and I'm glad that you said that too, because if you don't mind me saying just a personal struggle. No, no. So because of my work in diversity, equity, and inclusion, because of my own personal identity and the fact that I have um, children who are children of color, yeah. um, it, it, it hits me in, in a very specific way okay. when I hear hate speech. Okay. And so I have to check myself mm -hmm. Um in environments when someone says something that might not be, you know, completely, uh, I don't know, something that that might not be an, you know, like mm -hmm. a racial term or something like that, but it could be something like, um, oh, I know one. Someone I heard said the other day, "Am I not going to be treated fairly because I'm white in this classroom?" <laughs> I just overheard it, it wasn't my mm -hmm. but yeah. so something like that, and and it's it's that kind of thing that just irritates me to at such a oh, deep extent. And yeah. then I have the added issue, and this it's not just me, I know it's other people too, my husband and I talk about this as well, is that you know when we're meeting new people, it's like we have to figure out who, uh, what, what are yeah. you about? Like, are, yeah. are you going to be the type of person that says, if something happens to my son when he's pulled over by a police officer that he should have just complied yeah. and that he deserved it? Yeah. Are, are, if you're that type of person, I really don't want to engage with you right. because it's like psychological harm mm -hmm. in my, mm -hmm. if for me, you know? Yeah. So I struggle with that. No, you can only engage with people who come to a conversation with good intent. Yeah, yeah. So mm -hmm. I never want to shut down conversation, but at the same time, at what point do we need to shut down a conversation if it becomes egregious mm -hmm. and harmful. Like I'm thinking of a classroom environment even, yeah. right? Yeah. When when it gets to the level where someone's humanity is being attacked in a classroom, I would feel like it would be my responsibility to redirect that conversation. Oh, 100%. Yeah, yeah, you totally have to. Do, do you have, we both had issues in the classroom. 
do you think your background in rhetoric, and I understand we're both not like hardcore rhetoricians, yeah. right? But mm-hmm. you've got a really good understanding, yeah. right? Has that prepared, prepared you to be a better teacher and to present ideas in complex ways that could be understood as problematic? Yeah. As opposed to just coming, as this is this is the criticism that I have, right, of some of our colleagues. Okay. Right? And this is, I'm coming from a, a left-leaning position, mm-hmm. but you can't, sometimes we bring these things and we just want to, we want to hit people over the head with yeah. a hammer. Yeah. With this stuff. Yeah. And you're going to shut people down immediately. Yes. Right. Absolutely. Right. So have you, do you think that you are more prepared because of your awareness of an audience? to deliver some of these complex things in ways that students can understand. Yeah, now that you framed it that way, I I would think so. And um, talking about shutting down, then I also have the knowledge that I'm walking in with a particular identity. Mm -hmm. And so people are going to look at me and make assumptions. I mean, we make assumptions regardless of who walks into that classroom. But me being who I am, talking about something like race, you know, I have to be very careful because I know that um, I don't want, I never want a student to feel like they don't have a voice in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, when I teach diversity and communication and making sure that, for instance, white male students don't feel like that class is not for them or that it's not, a, that they're not a part of that class because we're all a part of diversity, yeah. right? We're yeah. all a part of it. And so, so I think that that also prepares me because of um, just being careful and cautious. I, and not to say that I always get it right and I never upset anyone. I'm sure I have in the past, but, um, but, but those, in general, it's been okay. I don't want to gloss over the fact that there are plenty, not plenty, that's a bad adverb. There are, um, yeah. there are students who come in to the class with mm-hmm. a chip on their shoulder. Yep. And when you try to throw progressive ideas or you try to complicate their understanding of the world, they're automatically going to shut down and they don't give a shit. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. And so it's, it's interesting that what I've done in the past, I, uh, oftentimes really early on in the class, as we do community building, I can pretty much pick students out. I, I know who those students are going to be. And um, I make sure that I try to develop relationships in general, you know, professional relationships with all my students, but a connection, right? And so um, if a student is going to disagree, you know, politically, I want to make sure that we can still talk, that we can still have a conversation. And I will say that in all of my years teaching diversity, yeah, I've had minor issues. I've only had one. It wasn't even a major issue. It was just a student that was pretty awful just sitting in the back of the class with a huge frown on his face because he was arguing it was during the me too uh, Mm -hmm. movement and he was trying to say that um men are falsely accused way more than women are actually harassed or sexually abused Mm -hmm. and so and he just would not and he was very upset that me and others in the class tried to ask him for sources Mm because that's how we were having the conversation not fussing not yelling Mm -hmm. just hey where where are your sources let's talk a little bit more about that and he got really defensive about that and then for the rest of the semester he was pretty shut down yeah i mean you tried to disarm Right? Yeah. But yeah. what are you going to do? Yeah. You know, you yeah. come in there. That's that's the power of, of the personal taking over the public or the political space, right? Is, yeah. Um, I think to go back and to kind of talk about how do we 
fix this or how do we change this or how do we improve this? There is, there has to be an understanding that when you engage in conversation, the reasons that you bring, the argument that you present is going to be different if you are having an argument with your spouse yes. or your kid than, than if you are having an argument with your boss or whether you're having yeah. an argument with your neighbor about some sort of political agenda. Exactly. Right? Policy uh, idea, something yeah. like that. But I think all of these things have just collapsed, yeah. right? Like I can tell my kid to get their ass in their room yeah. and they can't argue back yeah. because I am, yeah. right? like, you are I am the, the parent, power, right? Yes. <laughs> Some people think that they can do that in a public space yeah. in a different form, right? Yeah. But I can put you in your space. Right? Yeah. I'm not going to listen to you. No, no right? you can't. You, not you, in a public space. You yeah. should not be able to. Yeah. Yeah. But, and I wanted to add to what you were just saying about all of these things being collapsed, then add the medium, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. So we have the uh, uh, the way that we talk to different audiences, yeah. uh, but then we also have the medium. So mm -hmm. social media versus actually talking face-to-face -face with someone, it makes a huge difference. Yeah. yeah. It's really easy to be behind a screen and be a, a warrior and, uh, you know, a yeah. bastard. Um, but... <sighs> You know what's crazy? I, gotta, I need yeah. to find this article. Jonathan Haidt did a really like deep dive for the Atlantic on on the influence of social media on political opinions. Um, it came out a couple of years ago, but recently there's some academics who actually it was a kind of a meta analysis mm -hmm. that he did. But these academics went and they actually kind of parsed through this research in a deeper way, and they actually said. I, I don't think that the conclusions that Height was trying to draw about the fact that, you know, we cling to opinions that we agree with on social media is true. Mm -hmm. and they actually kind of went back to these studies and there, there were some examples of the fact that actually um, when opposing opinions are presented to us on social media, mm -hmm. we actually will engage with them oh. in productive ways. In so a productive that's, way? Yes. Oh, wow. So that's what's crazy to me, right? Because I think yeah. Haidt has become this political intellectual, or this, this public intellectual mm -hmm. who will make that argument I think that you and I, I think we tend to agree with that, you know, we want those those ideas that we are already in in collaboration or not collaboration with in unison with right right there we agree with we'll, mm -hmm. we'll cling to yeah but it's almost a, if if we can be pushed outside of our box a little bit we are receptive to that it's kind wow. of yeah okay we're willing we're willing to do it and engage in productive ways which if that's the case then 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 these private companies have more of a public responsibility exactly I think exactly yes than they recognize or yes. they want to recognize. And I have a question um, about that. Do you, do you know, was there any discussion about how to to get someone out of their box? Like, does that, because I would think that that would matter, right? It like, was just, how it was, do we, yeah. because it is, I, I will admit, it is, it's surprising to hear that uh, people are, might be open, yeah. uh, especially on social media, yeah. because it seems, it, not open to engage in a, in a yeah. productive way. That's what's surprising. Not, I mean, because people are all about engaging in negative ways. Yeah. So I'm wondering, like, what is the the special sauce to get people to engage in a productive way with a viewpoint that this particular criticism was of kind of the algorithm algorithmic programming uh, of Twitter okay. and Facebook, okay. which was basically it is not so much the content okay. that we are against. It is the fact that it is it is the quantity yes. of this yeah. thing. Yeah. That okay. We get, right. Yeah. With the argument being, if we if we were if we were forced to see and engage with things we don't agree upon, we're actually more receptive to it than than we would think. Okay. 
right? All but, right, yeah. But again, Facebook's job or Facebook's desire is to keep us on the platform. Absolutely. And so they just had assumed, right? I think that the assumption is if you just keep showing people things they agree with, they're going to stay on it. Absolutely. Whereas, in fact, yeah. Yeah. They're, more, they're willing to kind of engage with things they don't agree with. Yeah. Like the algorithm says something else. Yeah. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, that does. It does. It's kind of fascinating. Yeah. It is fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. What's the What's the dialogues program? What's going on? I mean, yeah. It's, it, you kind of kicked it off. Uh, was it pre-COVID? Pre-COVID. Yep. Pre-COVID. COVID, you kept doing it. What's the plan now? What's yeah. Going on? So it has, it, it, evol- it evolves every year. It's continuing to evolve. Okay. So it's exciting. Okay. Um, during COVID and especially the racial justice movement in 2020, okay. um, that's when I feel like we got, and people were, were ready, they were wanting to engage in these conversations. So we were in a space before the backlash because I feel like we're in a backlash right now. But this was before that. So people, I mean, yeah. So people were wanting to engage in uh, conversations. So we had a series um, over that, those semesters in 2020 about how to talk about race. And so going back to your discussion about audience, Mm -hmm. we have how to talk about, had how to talk about race to your children, how to talk about race within your workplace, how to talk about race on social media, to your family members, those kinds of things. And so we would have, and they weren't, um, we did one public facing dialogue where it was more educational. Like for instance, Michael Benitez and I did the intersection of um, freedom of speech and academic freedom. And so that was our public facing, but then our smaller dialogues are not, they are, they're supposed to be more confident, not confidential where mm-hmm. you people feel free to share yep. in that discussion. And usually there's no more than about 15 is the max that mm-hmm. we have. Um, and we have facilitators. Nice. And so, yeah. And every year we've done a theme. And so we did a theme. I think it was in 2021. It was um, on cancel culture. Okay. And so I know Janine, act- I'm pretty sure Janine actually did a panel or one of the discussions around so, yeah. that. Yeah. And um, and so and then last year we we uh, did some stuff on on environmental justice and oh. Christina, Dr. Christina Faust yep. was a, a big part of that. And um, by the way, but who two people who are always a big part of the dialogues program are Elise Crumholtz and Thomas Raglan and okay. the dean of students because we pair with the dean of students office. So it's communication studies and the dean of students office. Okay. And so we also have done, um, we've been asked to help uh, people manage various issues that might come up within departments, um, and not just academic departments, but even like coaching and, you know, so just various. And so we've done um, dialogues around that too, just like people asking us to come in and have conversations on how to have conversations. Yeah, yeah. Right? So, yeah. Why do we not know how to do that in academia? Yeah, because, or in higher ed. I don't say yeah, yeah, because you know it's funny that you asked that. I was just um, uh, stepping in and teaching uh, a fundamentals of communication class this morning, and I made the point that communication is all around us. You know, we think that we all know how to do it because it's something that we've just we've been doing for so long, and so we don't give it the the weight the gravity that it deserves, right? Uh, that And the seriousness and the, and the complexity uh, that it deserves. Yeah. And so um, I think that it would, it, I, I don't, I, yeah, I, I never assume that people in academia or, you know, would, would know necessarily how to communicate if that's not uh, effectively communicate, I should say, if that's not their discipline. Not to say that they can't, you know what I mean? But I'm just mm-hmm. saying that there's just, 
like you were saying, even with us being rhetorical communication scholars, you know, we have a different understanding of some of the processes and what goes into understanding audience demographics and psychographics and yeah. all of those aspects. And that's just not something that that people necessarily just pick up. You have been uh, here for several years. Mm -hmm. You've been a leader here for several years. And if you had all of the resources, all of the money in the world, how would you better prepare our teachers to practice civility, to energize dialogue in the classroom? Yes, yes. All right. So I... I would integrate some kind of within orientation training, something that that teachers knew professors have to do periodically to okay. be because all of us like I teach in the field of diversity and communication and I'm still learning, you know, language label differences, label changes, things like that. And so I think it would be important for us as professors to keep up with all of that and have some kind of basic uh, understanding and training. So for instance, we used to, SESA uh, used to do the microaggressions workshops. That would be great if, um, if people actually had to do that. What's yeah. unfortunate is that we offer it in various uh, areas around campus, offer these types of workshops and dialogues and things like that, but it's like the same people show up. And it, the people that probably need to show up don't no. show up. That is the weird thing about higher ed it, or ironic thing is yeah. you can't force people to take those. Yeah. Right. But, you know, Catherine, my wife, yeah. has to take that class for, you know, work. Yeah. Right? You've got yeah. to like go exactly. through and do the seminar, yeah. but you can't force anybody yeah. to do it. Yeah. It's got to be a handbook change. Yeah. <laughs> do you know how often Brian tells me, I'm surprised y'all aren't getting sued left and right for the things that are happening in the just hearing oh, he's some right, of this though. stuff. He's he right. says that all the time when I tell him some, you know. I mean, we, we won't, we won't, we could share the details about this over a coffee or an adult beverage, right? But how many times have we gone, you know, not just Brian, right? But, yeah. You know, recently you go, what the hell did you say? Yeah. Like in that class, yeah. like, are you serious? Are you serious? Did that really come out of your mouth? Oh my God. <laughs> really okay. come out of your mouth. But I also want to add to that though. Yeah. I don't think it's just professors uh, and, yeah. and staff. By the way, I want to add staff yes. there. And I want to add students, students yeah. that I think that students could uh, be well served by understanding how to advocate for themselves and also understanding um, how to deal with these instances in the classroom. Because yep. sometimes these incidents shouldn't necessarily go straight to the dean's office or straight yeah. to the president's office that... Uh, no. And, and because we don't, we do have freedom of speech. And so even if a professor were to say something that wasn't necessarily the best thing to say, you yeah. know, as long, again, racial epithets are different, I think right. a different category, but saying something in, insensitive or harmful or whatever, it's not like we have it in our policy. And I don't think we should, that the professor needs to be disciplined immediately, mm -hmm. right? That, but maybe more conversation, maybe mm -hmm. we can teach a student, like I'm thinking specifically about microaggression. Mm -hmm. We all commit microaggressions. Mm -hmm. All mm -hmm. of us do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so how great would it be if more students understood how to effectively handle that when it comes up in the classroom? Yeah, yeah. You know, but there's that power differential as well between students and professors. Yeah. So I think students sometimes might go above professors' heads when that happens because they're, I mean, yeah, there, there could be multiple reasons, but... 
Yeah. That makes me think of two things, Mm -hmm. which is if we are teaching our students to go over their faculty member, right to a chair, to a dean, or to the president, which happens. Yes, it happens. How are we training them for the real world? That's it. That's exactly why I, yep. Are you not going to be able to have tough conversations with your supervisor? That's exactly why I include Um, students in that. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Because that's not the this that's not the real world. No. You're not gonna be able to go above your supervisor's head and say, I want them to be removed. Yeah. Because they they said something stupid. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not gonna happen. And so yeah, but but how much more powerful and empowering would it be yeah. to teach people how to, to how to that. engage more, you know? I mean not to ha- how to engage and how to know when to just step back and just kinda sometimes yeah. you know what? You have to just Step back and let it ride. I hate to say that, but some you, we can't, you know, it's like the whole choose your battles thing. It is. It is. And it's knowing when and knowing which battles. And so. That, that ties to the second thing, right, mm-hmm. in terms of knowing when. And I think I want to turn this back on the students, right, and add some responsibility to what they should be doing in the classroom, which yeah. is, and their responsibility as members of that learning community. Yes. And this is something Bridget Art and I have discussed. I don't know if you've met Bridget, but she works in the in CTLD now, right? She's the associate director. Okay. Uh, oh, yes, and she's, yes. Her yes. background yep. is all teaching evaluations and kind yep. of teaching uh, improvement. We almost need to train our students on how to, how to complete productive teaching evaluations. Oh, that's a good point. Because it is almost – it is kind of their responsibility to help, uh, to help us become better educators. Yes. Better pedagogues. Yeah. And simply critiquing – you know, yeah. how we deliver our content or, you know, the lessons that, you know, we covered. That's not productive. No. Or our Help looks. me be a better, or our looks, <laughs> right? I don't want to, I didn't want to go there, but you're 100% <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah. You're like, you know, faculty, we have to fill out these early alert forms and we've got to, you know, submit grades and we've got to do all of this stuff. And it's, it can be a lift. I think as a student, you have a responsibility to provide productive feedback to us yes. to help us be better educators. Yeah. And there's none of that training that's going on. What You're does right. it mean to You're provide right. a product, productive feedback to a faculty member? Such a good point. So, and I think that would be a relatively easy one to tackle. Yeah. I think if just saying what you said and if more faculty heard this and this starts to become something that's yeah. talked about more, yeah. best believe I'll be talking about it more now than you said because it's great. That's a great idea. But to start talking to students in, in, in our own personal classrooms, right, and saying here's what it means to evaluate and also letting them know that, yes, it helps us, mm-hmm. but it also is empowering to them. And, you know, and it's a way for them to exercise their, their you know, their criticality. Their, That's not, a good not, point. Yeah, and, and not criticality in a negative way, no. but like really thinking through what they learned, how they learned, what was effective, what was not. It helps really drive in the... So we've, we've taught, now we've taught our students problem solving or having difficult conversations. Yeah. And I, what you're pointing out to me is, is how to deliver productive criticism. Yeah. Right? Those yeah. are life skills. Yeah, those are life skills that... That it wouldn't really we, fit into a class, right? That's almost like an yeah. orientation. It's thing. almost, but I think it could, well, I guess because we teach, commu- well, I, you know, yeah, teaching it, communication studies, I feel like that could easily fit in our yeah. classes. But I also think that before, at the end of a semester, regardless of what a, a person is teaching, yeah. uh, I think that a teacher can have a conversation with a student about what evaluations yeah. mean to all of us and to our system. 
So I guess we need to get a meeting with Will Simpkins on the books, and we're going to say, here's two <laughs> things that need to be added to orientation, <laughs> right? I know you said, yeah, it's, it's kind of, but I mean, in all seriousness, right? Why couldn't that be at least the foundation of yeah. this taught in an hour-long seminar and orientation? Yeah, that's true. You know what I mean? Just that's kind true. of the basics that's of true. this. Yeah, because here's the other thing. It's not just teaching in that, in that one moment how to effectively critique a, a uh, professor, mm -hmm. it's all it's teaching how to effectively critique messaging. Messaging, you're so across right. the board. So when they open up Twitter, TikTok, uh -huh. Facebook, Fox News, yeah. CNN, whatever they're yeah. consuming, yeah, how to be a thoughtful critic. Yep, that's what I mean. That's yep. what it, I mean. Of all the life skills, that's got to be one of the top five or six, surely, right? Is surely, but you, that's yeah. the one. That scares people the most. Yeah. The, the people that want to retain power in such a way that, yeah. you know. So, I mean, think about it. When you teach people those kinds of skills, it does challenge the status quo. Yeah. So it's, those that are benefiting from the status quo are not going to want those skills to be taught. Hence, let's get everything related to any kind of diversity. Yeah. Let's label it critical race theory and let's yeah. attack it in our school districts and make sure that they're not teaching. Yep. yep. You can it's talk easier. about the, you know, the, the first black sports players and everything, but you can't talk about why they were the first yeah. or the history behind what made them the first. Yes. Yes. Oh, but I couldn't be there in the first place. Yeah. So, yeah. So I, it's, it's a... It's a difficult one because we're we're uh, coming up against power. The hard conversations. It's the hard conversations, but it's also power. Oh, it's, oh, it's power, but I, yeah. mean, I mean, it's hard conversations that people don't want to have because they're hard. Yeah, that too. Yeah, and for that's sure. not your. Yeah. That's a disservice. It is right. It is. Um, so some people are, are. I mean, at the end of the day, it doesn't make me feel good to have these conversations. Yeah. Right. And I think that. There's a fear component, right? When people oh, are yeah. critiquing critical race theory, yeah. there's a fear. Yeah. There's an uncomfortability, uncomfortability, yeah. right? Yeah. There's, I mean, I think there is hate involved. I'm trying to give some folks the benefit yeah. of the doubt and saying, yes, but there has to be, it's just, it's, it's, being a human is messy. Oh, very and be, much And so. having relationships and communicating is messy. Very much And, so. Unless you're proactive and open-minded, you're going to avoid the messiness as much as you can. Yeah, yeah. You don't want to get into the shit. Yeah. And and yeah. when you can use it for political gain too, then you know, yeah, that's a, there you go. That's, that's a whole other banana. Yeah. I know that's not the same. <laughs> no, no, I mean, but it's it's it, there's so many things about this conversation that yeah. I was thinking about what Bill said the other day to chairs and talking about you know it's kind of your responsibility to provide perfect. <laughs> <laughs> productive feedback yes, to yes. your to your to your faculty exactly and, and honest and honest feedback. and i think supervisors mm -hmm. you have to develop that skill set to yeah. know how to provide honest and productive feedback to those who you manage it's very true. otherwise you're doing a disservice to mm -hmm. them mm -hmm. it's it's yeah. and that's a skill set yeah that is and, and if you can't do that you're not a good manager like yes. you're not doing what you're supposed to do that is your that is your responsibility yeah yeah. Oh, yeah, it's so complex. It's it's yeah, we all covered of the a lot above. Of ground. Yeah, we did. But it's all of that. It's it's very complex. We don't want to engage in those hard conversations, but we also want to feel like we belong to a particular group oh, yeah. of people. Yeah. Oh, there's so many things. Yeah. Going on. And so that that plays a role as well. Um and yeah, but you're right. And we're also uh cognitively lazy. 
That is so true, right? And we're also inundated with way too much information on a day-to-day basis. So if we're trying to sit down and have a conversation, it's just too much. No. It's just tiring. It's exhausting to be inundated with we go to those frames, right? Well, we're turning to rhetoric. We go to those frames and those forms and those shortcuts that, oh, I know what that means because I've seen it before. Yep. The the whole heuristic, right? Yeah. Yeah. What did you learn from leading faculty center? What are the lessons, the things that will stick with you as you... I was going to say move into this last part of your career. <laughs> Just kidding. But I, this, is a, this is a rated PG show, so I, I don't need to be chewed out. That's funny. But, <laughs> yeah. What did you learn as you are entering yeah, the final as you, stages? As, you, as, as the sun begins to set. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's pretty funny. Uh-huh. All right, um, what did I learn? Gosh, um, It was a lot because, for one, to think about the fact that I only had one semester that was quote-unquote normal, and then the pandemic hit in uh, spring of 2020. And so then from that point forward, I was in crisis leadership, like so many other leaders on campus, right? And so, so it's hard for me to even talk because I think that I don't know. I would, yeah, I would say faculty senate was my first major, major leadership position, and so, um, and I, it's hard to articulate what a leadership position looks like outside of crisis because that's what we were in that whole time. I mean, and not just the pandemic. You know, of course, working remotely, racial justice, people fired up, mental health, all of those kinds of things. And so, what I learned was, um, you know, several things. Um, is to try not to take things personally okay. when people are upset because sometimes they just need to vent to someone, but also to have firm boundaries Ooh. because sometimes people will, yeah, uh, yeah try to uh, step leap over those boundaries. How'd you do it? Like what were the, what were the tactics that you um, used? Meditation, yeah. journaling? I mean, yeah, great. Yeah. So, um, at, what works at, for you as a leader? Yeah. That's kind of- yeah. So in terms of just like self-care, um, I, I read a lot of sci-fi okay. and into the whole, you know, sci-fi, Marvel, Star Wars. And yeah. so, yeah, I will get sucked into that. And that helps me just decompress and get into another universe. Nice. <laughs> I'm in Star Trek, Hi-o. I need to leave this universe. Yeah. Nerd jokes. <laughs> Nerd <bit>. jokes. <laughs> and so, yeah, that's and plus I read a lot of uh, similar books. Okay. Okay. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I still do that every night. I have to read for a few hours before I go to bed. And okay. it's something, and it's not, it's not anything academic. It has to be something that is, cool. you know, uh, fantasy or sci-fi or something like that. So that helps me decompress. Okay. But of course, um, yeah, I'm not the best at exercising regularly, but I like to get out, hike, paddle, stuff like that. So okay. that helps too. That makes total sense. Yeah. I, mean, I wanted to kind of get into your brain, not, you know, because, yeah. you know, Setting boundaries and all this stuff. I think that those, this is the point of this podcast, right? Is, is leaders talking about that kind of stuff. But I think what, what you, what you need, do. what, what, yeah, exactly. Right. The kind of the value add is what are the yeah. specifics? So I like yeah. that, right? Like you can't go home and read. I'm reading like a book on program evaluation. I need to not read that. I need to like not read that when I get home. That makes total sense. During working hours. Yes. Yes. (laughs) You have to unplug. Yeah. And then, yeah, you have to unplug. But then here's another piece as well. Uh, Have a community. Have people 
that you feel comfortable, like feel comfortable just yeah. talking to, getting ideas from, getting their mm-hmm. perspective, you know, that you trust. Yeah. Um, I, I had a lot of great people around me okay. because we went through some things yeah. for sure. Um, uh, some very heated moments during uh, 2020, especially, but all throughout um, my tenure yeah. as, um, but, but definitely along the race issues and, and BIPOC resolution. And um, so I mean, it's, like, it's, like, it's like the whole campus community knew about yeah. um, what went down with that. And it was, it was rough and um, you know, people were upset. And, and so it's like, yeah, so I, when I got off that meeting, because even, so of course we were remote at that time. Mm-hmm. And so at that time, uh, faculty members were yelling at each other mm-hmm. during that Senate meeting. Mm-hmm. And I had my office door closed, but my family could actually hear the yelling. So I had, I had you know, two, two of my family members peek in to make mm-hmm. sure everything was okay. And then of course, when I got off the call, um, you know, I got a few calls, but I also had called a few people just to like yeah. process because that was very hard to go through. Yeah, that's... Be- because, because these are my colleagues. Yeah. These are people I respect immensely. And to see that kind of communication breakdown, and also as a communication scholar, to see yeah. that breakdown, it hurts. It hurts. And I, and I can't help but to feel a little responsible. Like, yeah. what could I have done differently? What yeah. should I have done to prepare? I did not. I did not realize that it was going to happen the way it happened, and people are going to get that heated and upset. And What'd you so, do to change? Okay, so that happened. You know, a while. It's a few semesters ago. Yeah, it's twenty twenty. I think. What was the pivot? Right, because now, now, I think also from an outsider's perspective. Yeah. Right. I think that you. And now Liz have created a faculty senate that is able to engage in these very, very yeah. hot button issues yeah. in a productive way yep. that will also allow for when the door's shut and everybody leaves to go get a beer afterward, even though we just yelled at each other. Yeah, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. And I think it does you've make returned sense. civility yes. to, yes. to faculty senate. Not to say that Matt and Andrew was gone, oh, yeah, but I think yeah. that just by the nature of what you covered yeah. during your tenure. Yeah. So what what, what, what was the what was, what, was yeah, the change? what was it? Yeah, what was the change? Um, unfortunately, it was Robert's rules. I don't. Uh, I hate no. to say unfortunately, but it's, we really had to get to the nitty gritty of Robert's rules. That's crazy. And and for some people, it was very irritating. You know, to that's have why to they're there, that. right? But that's, that's why they're there. And so we had, um, yeah. So it that we we had to do that, and so getting to that point helped turn us around and then of course i wrote letters to the senate yeah. as well and i um you know a few times gave a little speech at the beginning of a senate session to try to get us back on track so it's a lot of talking i know liz is going to do the same thing to make sure that it's a democratic process and yeah. that we're respecting that and so i i think that was the major it had to be that it, unfortunately we had to like come down on the rules because that was the only way to move us forward. <laughs> I mean, that's why they're there. That's why they're there. It's... Yeah. And I think, too, that people who experienced that moment, because yeah. that was probably the roughest moment, and people who experienced that did not want to experience that again. And so I think that everyone kind of took it upon their own, you know, they took on the, uh, their responsibility for themselves mm-hmm. to um, just be more careful with their, with their words and how they approached things. To be more reasonable. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Last question, because my God, this is already the longest interview I've done. <laughs> oh, yeah, um, you are now department chair, right? And, and my God, I don't know how many times I told you, you can do it, you can do it, right? <laughs> There's so many people, you can do it, you can do it. And you've talked about Brian, you can do it, you can do it. I want you to be not, I want you to be selfish. I want you to be, I want you to be uh, not humble. What made you think you could do it? In your head, Katia Campbell. Yeah. What was this? What was the self-realization? Yeah, and it, and it did have to get me to that point because I want I do want to say something too, just about yeah. chairs in general. I don't think that many of us as faculty are not just built to yeah. be chairs. That many, I think many, and especially too, like I think about for us as rhetoric, we don't want to be chair. Like a lot of rhetoricians in general don't want to. I just yeah. like it's not something we want to do. Yeah. And so, um, but I think it it happens across our community. And I spoke about this um, at our at our meeting on Monday. And so um, so. Yeah, so it's it's really hard to like overcome that feeling because being chair puts puts us at a different level or puts me at a different level where you know now I actually have to um, I, I make decisions about people you know that mm -hmm. impact people differently and ha yeah. and and have way more responsibility and it feels weird I have to admit that it feels weird and so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and um so but what finally made me come around to it was I had to remind myself that I did uh, I did just do three years in Senate and that and the other thing is that I have a deep commitment to the communication studies department and the faculty within it. And I want the best for the department. And working with faculty Senate, the years I also developed relationships across campus. So I felt like being in the chair role could help. Uh, and I mean, being a faculty Senate president and then being in the chair role, that I already had those built-in relationships, and perhaps that could help me advocate more so for my the faculty in the department and my department. That makes sense. But you still had to. How did you come to believe in yourself? Uh, yeah, so I still doubt all the time. Okay. That's why I'm sorry. I just took a pause no, because, yeah, because you said it like that's like a done deal. <laughs> believing yeah. in yourself. Self-doubt isn't always a bad know, thing. It's not. It's not a bad right? thing. But believing in yourself is, uh, is um, what's the word I'm looking for? It is not consistent and permanent, right. for me at least. Like right. I have days where it's like, I got this. Yeah. I got this. And then I have other days what the hell did I get myself into? And oh my gosh, am I handling this correct? You know, like you said, the self-doubt. So it, it's that kind of thing. But I also have a really supportive family, of course, Brian, my husband. Um, my whole family is incredibly supportive, but uh, Brian and then my son talks to me a lot. Okay. We talk a lot. Okay. And so like even um, when I was awarded the MLK Peace Award this earlier this year, and I got the email, and he was in the kitchen watching me read the email, and I told him what the email was, and he looked at me, and he said, Mom, I can see you are doubting why you deserve this award. I see the imposter syndrome kicking in right now, and you need to stop and tell yourself that you do deserve this, that there is a reason that they selected you. So when that comes out of the mouth of my yeah. Then 17 year old son, like, okay, I need to stop being such an ass and listen. Damn, <laughs> that's heavy. It is, right? That he looked at me yeah. and he actually said imposter syndrome. 
<laughs> he knew. He knew. He know. He knows. What I have, uh, uh, I'm not trying to make this uh, about my understanding or critique or observation of you, but as a friend and a colleague and somebody who was mentored by you, what I have seen over the last three or four years is, is you have developed a term that I like to coin confident humility, which yeah. is having the confidence to believe in yourself, but having the humility to know when you don't know something. Yeah. And then adding confidence back on there to know I have the confidence to ask. Yes. To get an answer that's going to help. And I think that that makes a good leader. Oh, like that is, yeah. that is such an important part of leadership mm -hmm. is – that's a great term. Is recognizing what you don't know. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and what yeah. you're not good at and you know and where you can delegate and all of that. So. Yeah, where you can delegate, how you can improve. Yes. That yeah, I, I think that's important. Well, Dr. Katia Campbell, um, the communication studies department is very fortunate to have you. And Thank uh you. uh it's really awesome to kind of see you in this role. Um, you've done amazing things for faculty senate. I've seen the, you know, the relationships that you formed with President Davidson and Provost Tatum, and I know you and Bill are close, and uh, you've kind of, there's, there's almost, um, you know, uh, I think about in terms of sports coaching, where you'll have a coach and then a coaching tree, somebody who, who mentors a lot of coaches who go on to great success, and mm -hmm. I think that um, you are, you're now that mentor who has has really kind of you have your own tree right and i see that yeah. in liz and i see that um in in myself uh i see that in jackie kirby in our department mm -hmm. and um wow. it's uh it's it's uh, as the sun isn't setting yet <laughs> so i just can't sure wait i can't that? i can't wait for like you got that taste of leadership no. and you liked it, right? And you you did. You did, I right? Mean, yeah, I liked aspects of it. But, but but I don't necessarily want to continue. You got to find the, the challenge. <laughs> you met it and you didn't go back to faculty. You are now running. You were in the hardest job at a university. Yeah. And I think that people often forget that. Yeah. Um, it's not the same at every university, but definitely at ours, being a chair is arguably the hardest job. It, because it is. It's difficult. Yeah. There's not the there, distance. And, yeah. Yeah. and there's you, a huge learning curve. Huge, huge. Huge. You don't have a distance between you and your friends. You are now managing your friends. Mm -hmm. right? a, there you go. That's a, the word. That's what I was looking for a earlier. A dean, I, yeah. right, may not, be chair, may not be friends with all the chairs and all the faculty, but you, because of the nature of this, or, of this organization, yeah. That, yeah, and you're managing your I'm, friends. Yep, and I've been around for so long. Yeah, yeah. So I've built up friendships in the department. Uh, yeah. So so Godspeed to you. Do you have any closing remarks, any comments? Uh, I just want to say that the provost's office is lucky to have you, Dr. Oh, Sam Jay, yeah. even though you abandoned us in communication studies. No, that's your fault. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you're Dan Lair's fault, right? You, you too, oh, yeah. yeah. Let's not even talk yeah. about And I'll throw Dr. Karen Dan in there, Lair. too, right? But I mean, seriously, the leaders of that department, you kind of – and Mike Monsoor, right? We, uh, uh, I, had, I had four very influential people that kind of nice. pushed me out the door. <laughs> no, you did. So yeah. thank you so much, yeah, and you. I enjoyed this uh, conversation uh, immensely. So thank Likewise. you, Katia. Thank you, Sam. Of course. Okay.